the Heritage Foundation. I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. President Trump's recent visit to Brussels to address the NATO summit has been generating mixed messages. This is what leadership looks like to me. This is uh, the president of the United States leading the NATO alliance, uh, making sure that they're following him, that they're coming behind and, and meeting their obligation. NATO has survived a lot of things, from wars to terrorism, but it's never had to survive a threat from a president of the United States. Yeah, I've long said that by the end of President Trump's time in office, I think that what we're going to see is a stronger NATO alliance. And so all of these people who are clutching their pearls saying, oh my goodness, President Trump is using tough talk with Angela Merkel, she needs it. And a lot of what he said in that meeting yesterday, that's been on the minds of everybody who is in the room. He was just the person who was saying it in a way that was believable. I don't think he understands what alliances are. Uh, everything is, what are you going to give me and what am I going to get out of it? I don't think he understands all the other things that come with alliances. The president has been vocal in his criticism of NATO, saying it is outdated and countries are taking advantage of our contributions. And while the president reaffirmed our commitment to NATO and continuing the decades-old security agreement, he has said that if NATO allies don't pay more, we might do less. We have countries within NATO that are taking advantage of us. With me, I believe they're going to pay. And when they pay, I'm a big believer in NATO. So what is NATO? Why is it important? And is President Trump right that our allies should be paying more? To clear up some of the confusion surrounding the recent summit in Brussels, we sat down with Daniel Kochis, policy analyst in European affairs in the Margaret Thatcher Center for Freedom here at the Heritage Foundation. We discussed the basics of NATO, some of the ways it continues to serve our national security interests, and the White House's current state of play. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on today. Why don't we just start from the beginning? Give me a little bit of an overview of how NATO was started and where it sort of evolved since then. So NATO started in 1949. Uh, the North Atlantic Treaty was a treaty signed by 12 countries, the mostly Western European countries and the United States, uh, that created this organization basically for mutual assurances on security matters uh, in um, wanting to protect their free institutions. These were all democratic countries that believed in the same things the United States does. And this was a response to the fallout after World War II. That, with, that's correct. Yeah. So you had uh, the Soviet Union uh, controlling large swaths of, of uh, Europe. And so you, these countries in Western Europe did not want to fall under Soviet domination and the United States, of course, had an interest uh, in, in not seeing that happen either. We rededicate ourselves to that obligation and propose this North Atlantic Treaty as one of the means to carry it out. Men with courage and vision can still determine their own destiny. They can choose slavery or freedom, war or peace. I have no doubt which they will choose. The treaty we are signing here today is evidence of the path they will follow. If there is anything certain today, if there is anything inevitable in the future, it is the will of the people of the world for freedom and for peace. 
So how did they determine who could be a part of NATO? Well, so the the 12, as I said, the, the 12 early members were uh, European countries. So in the uh, North Atlantic Treaty, there's there's actually a clause about who could become a member of NATO. And so basically you have to be, uh, it says any European country that can contribute to security can and, and is agreed to by the uh, parties that are already members of the treaty can, can join NATO. Uh, so the U.S. is sort of an outlier, the United States and Canada, as the two non-European countries uh, that are in within NATO. So how has NATO been used since it was established in 1949? How have we seen it implemented for security for America and for uh, other countries participating? So NATO has been extremely uh, successful. So you think about how long the Cold War was until really until the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1991. So from 1949 to 1991, NATO was successful in protecting uh, Western Europe and the U.S. and Canada from uh, any kind of Soviet invasion or incursion. So really, the, the, the alliance was built around, and for most of its history, collective defense. So let's, let's all kind of get together and defend ourselves, this sort of you know, tribe mentality. After the fall of the Soviet Union, there were questions about, should NATO stick around? Is it necessary anymore? What is going to become of this? And so what, what you saw is that it, it moved towards um, what people call out-of-area operations. And so what that means is that basically out of the area of Europe. So um, when you think about uh, Afghanistan was a, was a NATO mission, so uh, the fighting the Taliban and, and, and trying to root out al-Qaeda. So doing that sort of thing outside of the, the immediate area of NATO, that was really where – NATO went. In the past probably decade or so, um, because of actions taken by Russia and countries within Europe feeling much more concerned once again about their own security, we've seen NATO revert back to its its sort of original role and really its, uh, its, its raison d'etre, its, its purpose for being, and that is sort of collective defense. So protecting those uh, countries that are members of the alliance. If a country says, hey, we've got this big, massive problem, we need to use force against this other nation that's posing this this problem. What is the process for doing that? How do you activate NATO for defense? So I, it's important to, to remember that NATO is a defensive alliance. So NATO is never going to uh, attack a country and use sort of collective defense to attack a country. That's I think that that's an important uh, distinction. But if a country is attacked, there's a clause within the treaty that basically says – an attack on one country will be perceived as an attack on all of us. That's Article 5. This is Article 5. Okay. So we hear a lot about this sort of uh, in the news and, and in talks and whatnot uh, these days. So Article 5, this is really the, the crux uh, of NATO. So it protected smaller countries like Denmark or, or the Netherlands that wouldn't have been able to stand up to the Soviet Union by themselves. Uh, but collectively, together with the U.S. and with some bigger European countries, they were able to do so. So now you asked about the procedure. So basically, uh, Article 4 talks about uh, cons consultation. So any country can request a consultation on a specific issue. So, uh, you know, uh, country X has rolled across our borders and we, we that's an attack on us. And they can uh, call the uh, council together. So there's each country has a representative and basically talk about this. And then the alliance decides they vote on whether or not they would like to invoke Article 5. So now switching gears here, I, I want to talk a little bit about currently what's happening 
with NATO and with uh, President Trump. Mm-hmm. He's been very vocal, uh, even since his campaign, that uh, NATO, has, uh, other allies in NATO have been taking advantage of the U.S., as he said, and our contribution to NATO has been disproportionate to their contribution. So let's just take this head on. Who is paying for NATO and how is that decided? Who pays for what and how much of it? So there are two buckets of money. There's sort of uh, general NATO funds. And so these funds are uh, given by the member states based on a specific formula that's set out according to each country's gross uh, national product. So you th- you think of so the United States is the number one contributor to this to general defense uh, funds of the NATO. So we spend about twenty two percent. We pay for about twenty two percent of it. Germany's number two because of the uh, large, very large economy within Europe. They're about fourteen percent, and so on and so forth. Now every country has is paying their share. So it's similar to the the UN has a very similar procedure for for how things are funded. Uh, and so within NATO, every country is is, is paying their share of, of this uh, fund. So then why would Trump say that they're not paying their, yes. their share? I, I'd like to exactly. really get into that so we can draw a contrast here. So the second uh, bucket is your own national contributions. So how much money are you as a country spending on your own uh, defense, on your own Army, Navy, whatnot? And so this is where there's an issue. So the United States uh, is probably spending around 3.4% of our uh, GDP, our gross domestic product, on defense matters. Uh, In Europe, there's a wide range. So you have some countries that are spending 2% of their GDP or higher on defense, and then you have countries that some countries that are spending around 1% of their GDP on defense. And this is really where uh, the disagreement, I think, comes into play. So in 2006, Benchmarks were laid out. These benchmarks were again um, reiterated in 2014 that basically said that every country within NATO needs to spend 2% of their gross domestic product on defense. They had also said that in addition to the 2%, that each country needed to spend 20% of their 2% defense spending on actual equipment purchases. So you think about um, you can spend an awful lot of money on defense if you increase the salary for your soldiers or uh, raise their pension costs. So this was a way to try to actually get real equipment and new research and development into, into production. So those benchmarks were laid out then, and many countries uh, have not hit those benchmarks yet. So Donald Trump really is the only president to criticize that there is a disproportionate amount being paid by the U.S. and other countries. Other presidents have have uh, criticized uh, this formula. Is is there a sense, do you have a sense that this will be fixed and improved on, or do we need to apply more pressure? And what sort of pressure should we apply to get countries to pay their uh, their share? So you're right in that this, this is something as old as the alliance. That you can go back and look at Republican and Democratic presidents in the past who've complained that uh, Europeans are, are underspending on their defense and whatnot. And the benchmarks have changed over time. So at one point during the Cold War, it was 3%. It wasn't It wasn't 2%. And so uh, really it comes back to Article 3, uh, which which says that, you know, each country basically ne- needs to be able to provide for their own defense. Uh, and countries, you know, clearly are, are, are not doing that. And so the benchmark uh, numbers are just a way to try to get to that fulfillment of, of those treaty uh, preconditions. So 
Republican and Democratic presidents, as I said, have complained about this for a long time. So in 2017, only five of uh, then 28 countries were hitting uh, the benchmark. So that's not very many. The United States was, was one of those five. Um, and I think it was 12 of uh, 28 were spending the 20 percent. Uh, so clearly not enough. And, and the United States is trying to figure out ways to get countries to increase. The good news is, is that we actually have seen quite a bit of increase in the, over the last three years. It started before uh, current president took office, but it has continued under his watch that European countries are spending more. So in 2018, eight countries are going to hit the 2% benchmark. So we've seen increases in real spending uh, every year for the last three years, and that's a very good thing. Let's play a hypothetical. Are you, are you game? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Here's the hypothetical. Trump, the master negotiator, as he likes to call himself, says, we're leaving NATO if they don't pay more money, if they don't pay more is that feasible? Could the U.S. actually leave NATO? What would that look like? Uh, I should start by saying I think that would be an absolute disaster for the United States to, to leave NATO. And I, I don't want to uh, put that idea in anyone's mind that I think that, that it's a good idea. There, there's actually no procedure in the treaties uh, for leaving. Uh, so it's sort of an open question about what the mechanism would be uh, if a country actually did want to leave uh, the alliance. But this this has been the most successful treaty alliance um, that the United States really has ever been a part of. It's allowed things, you think about something like uh, the European Union that that a lot of people know about. The only reason that that ever came into existence is because NATO provided the security uh, for that to grow up. And for the United States, it's had a tremendous benefit. We have a successful democratic countries that are friends and allies that can then go with us when we look to do things. So every time, you know, say the coalition against ISIS, uh, who who are the countries that are really are actively involved uh, in that? For the most part, with the exception of a few, uh, like the Israelis and, and the Jordanians, it's all Europeans. It's it's the British, it's the French, uh, and it's the Germans. It's and these are the countries that that we look to um, when we have to go do things that are that are hard and that are difficult. So we have an interest, I think, in, in, in keeping uh, them secure. There's an economic interest. We do a lot of trade, uh, even with some of the tariff issues we've had lately with Europe. Uh, and so all of those things, I think it's, it's really a bargain uh, for the United States, the amount of money we put in and the value we get out of it. If you're advising the president currently, mm-hmm. what would be your number one piece of advice? Well, my number one piece of advice would be you know, to not throw the baby out with the bathwater that it's important for uh, the president to try to keep talking about 2% and find innovative ways to get our allies to spend more on defense, while at the same time not leaving the alliance. Uh, NATO, as I said before, really is a bargain for the United States. It's the centerpiece of our security infrastructure that we've built since the end of the the Cold War, and it greatly benefits us. And so I, I think that we always need to keep that in mind that it's it's sort of like a family that you can argue about things, but that ultimately you're you're better off together in this uh, security uh, environment. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. That's a wrap for today's episode of Heritage Explains. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe and give us a like on whatever format you are listening to. And of course, we always encourage you to recommend us to your friends and family. So we'll see you next week when Michelle talks about the Space Corps.
Heritage Explains is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by Thalia Rampersad.